Welcome to the Brown Journal of World Affairs podcast. My name is Cameron King, and I'm one of the editors-in-chief for the Journal of World Affairs, a biannual journal of international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. Our podcast seeks to explore international issues related to the content of our upcoming issue of the journal via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, practitioners, and activists. We're honored to be hosting our very first guest on the podcast today, retired Brigadier General and Wilson Center Fellow Peter B. Zwack. General Zwack has led a distinguished career of military policy and academic service with a focus on Russian and Eurasian security affairs. He served as a military intelligence and Eurasian foreign area officer for 34 years in West Germany, South Korea, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Russia. General Zwak has also served as the U.S. senior defense official and attaché to the Russian Federation from 2012 to 2014. Most recently, he's joined the Keenan Institute as a Wilson Center Global Fellow, and he's published two books detailing his experiences serving abroad, Afghanistan, Kabul, Khabar, and Swimming in the Volga. General Zwak, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, uh, Brown team. Thank you for bringing me on. I um, have a bit of a history at Brown. My daughter is an undergrad there, graduated in 2016. It was a Brown program in coordination with our University of Rochester. It sent me to the Soviet Union for the first time in 1989 to study in a Soviet provincial university when things were opening up during Glasnost and Perestroika. And um, I had the privilege of of speaking uh, at the Watson Institute about Russia just five years ago. So this is full circle. Thank you for bringing me on and, and delighted to continue my relationship with you guys. How I got into Russia, how that all happened. Born in Chicago, grew up in New York City. My, uh, my father uh, was um, a Hungarian immigrant, refugee, came out after uh, the horrific siege of Budapest in World War II. The Soviets, Russians were there. And he flees in 1948 when the communists take power. So we have a history of, if you will, of being influenced by Russia mm-hmm. uh, in, in my family from my father's side. My mother, uh, all-American girl, all-American woman, and she, um, she fascinated in international relations and ends up going to Columbia to the, at that time, Harriman Institute, uh, the Russian Institute. Now it's Harriman Institute. And she gets her master's in Russian studies. I'm her young son at the time. And she took me everything to, as a little boy to Sergei Eisenstein movies and, and uh, James Bond from Russia with Love. And so she was a real Russia wonk and, and dragged me around. Uh, my father was an international guy with a lot of history with Central Eastern Europe. And that's helped, if you will, my interest in Russia. I end up joining the army, enlisting in the army in 1980 after college, uh, which was in Colorado, and then um, in the wine business. And uh, and I'm brought in, and I and I join a large reason to thank our country for doing the things that did help my father, who became an American citizen. Always, always worried about Europe, always worried about Russia. Yet in my family, there was also a great interest in it. That's, that's, that's the origin story. I'm in the Army as a young second lieutenant. I, I come in as a private first class, officer candidate school, second lieutenant. And uh, friends, my first assignment is as a, um, I was a tactical intelligence officer at the time. And I was uh, doing that in a field artillery unit, cannons, 
with a mission to go to Europe if the Soviets and Warsaw Pact invaded. And it was, uh, so that was the mission, fire cannon rounds and all that. But if, if it got really awful and they were uh, overrunning us, then they fire nuclear weapons, which when you think about it is really, really crazy, but that's what it was at that time. You fire a nuclear round 10 miles and hope that stops them. And that's the world that I grew up in as a young officer, took it really seriously. I stepped back and I said, oh my God, how did we get here? We never want to go back to that. And I tell everybody that's younger to go out and watch Dr. Strangelove, right? If hopefully you all have, because uh, what's the essence of good satire? A little bit of the truth. And that period of the Cold War was crazy. Mutual assured destruction. And that was the U.S., and the Soviet Union at that time and the world we were in, we never want to go back to that. So that's how I started into the army. I'm, again, I'm a, a military intelligence officer, meaning I wear a uniform and I'm overt and everybody knows I'm a military mm -hmm. intelligence officer. No, no skull and dagger type of stuff. And it's basically where they are, who's coming in, where are they behind the hill? They're going to come this way. This is what they're thinking or we're trying to assist. That's what the job was. Mm -hmm. And then through my career, as you talked about, I, uh, I became a uh, foreign area officer. Uh, it was uh, started off as a Soviet foreign area officer, which now then changed in 1991 to a Russian Eurasian uh, foreign area officer. And that's what I did for the rest of my career, also as a combat tactical strategic intelligence officer. And Russia was always a part of this. During this podcast, I'm going to sound like a crazy old cold warrior, but truth in lending on a human level with all my contact with the Russians going back to 1989 on a personal, cultural level, I like the Russians. And I want to make that absolutely clear. But I've also been an old Cold Warrior, but I like to think I've been balanced. And, uh, and so, um, uh, and we're in a very, very difficult position, which we'll talk about in your later question, about what is going on in Europe and Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's really, really dangerous, but I try to be balanced in the way I look at it though I think the Russians are way out of bounds, but we'll come into that later. So that's how I start in the military. I, I'm, I'm, uh, my book, uh, Swimming the Volga, is where all of a sudden I come to age as a, I'm already a Russian-Soviet foreign air officer. I've studied it all of a sudden with glasnost opening and Gorbachev, Reagan and Perestroika. Perestroika is already struggling at that time. I get a Russian visa a Soviet visa to study there with the universities, with American students in this Russian provincial town of Kalinin, now called Tver, uh, between Moscow and St. Petersburg. At that time was Moscow and Leningrad. And I go and I'm there. I spend the summer in Russia and it is uh, one of the summers of my life. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not naive. I know that it's been a very, very tough relation but getting it in the future, we'll talk about it. One of the great experiences is finally meeting Russians, meeting them out on their ground, in their families, in the Volga River, out traveling. Almost always a good result. And that doesn't mean we agreed on every point. And that's sort of what drives me to stay in this, this world 
why as a hardcore army retired officer who has been a cold warrior twice, and I'll explain that, that still believes and while a lot of bad stuff's going on and we got to push back and draw lines that on the human side, we got to find a way with the Russians and the Russians got to find a way with us because we are actually in a very, very dangerous space. So that's the, you know, the Marvel um, origin story, if you will, about how I landed in the Russian business, almost, almost sort of swept away. I'd go in 89 and then I'm in Russia eight more times in the 10 years of 89 through 99. And what is so important about this time, Cameron, is that we are at the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And a lot of this, and, and your questions are going to come to that, but there was a lot of hope. It was almost, it was almost not, democracy, free, we're going to get rich freedom, all of that, all these thoughts, but it was an unformed, it was a, it was a nation, was psychologically a lot, we're all into it, but unformed structurally to handle a free market mm -hmm. and, and, and all of a sudden liberties and an open press and unbridled business on the street level, which turned off into this black marketing and scams and a lot of really good, innocent Russian people ended up with a really bad taste in their mouth from the 1990s because they kind of felt forsaken by the whole process. So I, 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 this is a long preamble to get us here. We're in the 30th anniversary. And the last uh, entree point is when you look at a map now, Look at that map of the Soviet Union in December 1991 and how it breaks up. And in the day after Christmas, all of a sudden there are 15 different nations. Russia is the biggest, but they've lost, if you will, the Soviet Union and all those other nations, all those republics. And, and then you have 25 to 30 million Russians in those 14 countries that are now separate, that are now minorities in countries, some of which don't like them. So again, I'll stop there. I've been working on all of this stuff my whole life and career, uh, military and academia. And these are the things I think about. Go back and really review the 30th anniversary of, uh, because it's all playing out right now in Ukraine, used to be old Soviet, Kazakhstan, Belarus, mm -hmm. Armenia, Azerbaijan, all which are flaring up. Okay, over to you, Cameron. Great. So touching on a little bit, you talked about your new book, Swimming in the Volga. And in that book, you elaborate on some of your experiences as an officer in the pre-Putin USSR and the upheavals you witnessed during your visits. Many of these experiences involve personal interactions with Russian communities, as you mentioned. Could you talk a bit about the effect of the collapse of the USSR on Russian identity and how understanding these shifts might improve US diplomacy? Okay, it's a great question. It hardened the Russians. It, 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 I can't exaggerate how, while the Russians were skeptical, remember we just came out of Cold War where we were, you know, you know we were portrayed as the enemy and we looked at them as the same way. Uh, but with all the contact, the culture, all the students and all that, we had learned to de-demonize each other 
because of the contact. And that's why students like you and, and young officers like I was need to be out there and vice versa meeting Russians. And that's really hard right now in this very dangerous environment. There was a lot of, as I, I tried to touch on, hopes, shattered dreams. A lot of those dreams were wildly, almost almost fantasy, but, but a really almost, almost a sullenness as it got deeper into the Yeltsin government where democracy wasn't, who, who was getting ahead? Black marketeers who became oligarchs, new Russians with their, uh, with their uh, fancy, uh, you know, 280, uh, 280 uh, Mercedeses, a lot, of, lot, of, lot of petty street crime, prostitution. It, it was, I mean, there are a lot of good things going on. Don't let me exaggerate. But, but it's, it, it wasn't what they thought. Something some of you could look up as the triple M, MMM scam, where a lot of Russian citizens invested in a pyramid scheme and got and lost all their money. Uh, the citizens, and it's the citizens that are always losing in this deal. They, uh, the, the inflations, the ruble. I'm out in Russia as in, in the early 90s. My dollar is worth 10 times what it what the street value of a ruble is and so everything is upside down but there was also a hope that we the u.s nato and all of that in europe were going to build better relations with the russians and looking out toward the future but perestroika the restructuring of the economy doesn't work, if you will, in a classic, whatever you call open free market, in that you have, again, oligarchs, national nationalizations, and a new moneyed wealthy class that we know of today, and power centers uh, that, that evolve into the leadership, in part coming from the old KGB. And so all of it is there. But on a human level, you get past that crust the Russians, you know, they've got a lot of positives going for them. And they are a superpower, not just nuclear weapons, but in natural resources and for us culturalists, the fine arts. So I'll come back to you. Great. Thank you for that, that wonderful answer. Talking a bit about Glasnost and Perestroika, which you just touched on, having witnessed the, trans the transition to a Gorbachev presidency in the 1990s, what did those policies look like on the ground and how did they shape the lives of private Russian citizens? And when we're talking about Glasnost and Perestroika, we're talking really mid to late 1980s. And then it extends into the 90s once the Soviet Union um, breaks apart. Gorbachev understood that the command economy wasn't working. And the Russians and Soviets could not compete with the West, with the Americans, the Japanese. It's, it was a brute force industrial model. And what the Russians focus on, they do actually pretty well, but, they, but, but in, a, in a narrow way, they're in the Cold War and the Cold War is spending them to death. And there is a, realize, a real realization that this wasn't efficient and wasn't working. And they then tried to make major changes in their economy that when it reverberates down into the towns and villages, mutates to gastronomes and grocery stores with only 10 to 12 items on the shelves. You have the development of a kiosk economy 
where the smart, uh, the smart uh, entrepreneurs and, and street people and figure out how to get goods to market. And it's not through the traditional Russian command economy that they're trying, but through their own very, very figuring out how to get trucks going and, and cars going. And we always kind of, we always had something called the banana test. We would go and see, oh, that place has bananas. That place has bananas. They figure out a way to, uh, to uh, get goods to market, produce. But, but people had to still wait in a lot of lines in the middle of it, toward the end, actually. Gorbachev, understandably, tries to put a ban on alcohol. That didn't work very well. And I was there to see pieces of it later where all the workarounds to get alcohol and, and the kiosks were full of them. And there was a sense that everybody wanted stuff from the West. You know, everything from, you know, vodka to foods to everything else. You know, Stoli, great vodka, but everybody wanted absolute. And, they, and, and you would find them in these, in these uh, pictures of it, these stalls and and, and then the imported foods from uh, Europe and elsewhere, big street markets. But these stores where often the shelves were bare. And I remember up to the end of the Soviet Union, 1991, these things called the Berioski, and the old timers will understand that, the birch tree restaurants. And that is where foreigners or Russians with currency dollars could come in and buy you know, Heineken beers and Western goods, all of that stuff. And there, and, and that whole, so you had this dual economy. I think that, that Gorbachev understood it, but it was a whole lot harder to change it, especially if you had a lot of people figuring out how to get ahead. Glasnos, openness, it was on. When I arrived in 1989, you could talk about anything in, in the Soviet Union except denigrating Vladimir Lenin. Everything else was out. You could, you could slam Stalin. And, and it was, a, there were all these new newspapers that you know, and Ogonyok and all of that. You, there, there were kiosks full of newspapers. I, I send you the pictures. I took newspapers and articles and, and, and the Russians were, were pretty on, in, in tune. Uh, there has always been state press, but it was pretty open at that time. And then I will remember in the early mid '90s, internet arrives. It arrives slower from elsewhere, and you know, youth being the same everywhere, flocking to internet, game cafes in Russia today, friends. Unlike China, while their controls is far more connected on the internet than China. And I'm hoping that via the internet, the Russian people understand that the, their regime has uh, put Russia and Europe and the world in a pretty dangerous spot right now. And hopefully the message gets out. So, so much is going on with uh, Glasnost and openness, plus the opening to the different countries. And I mean, me as an army officer, American uh, captain studying in, in, in the Soviet Union in a provincial city and being treated really well. Uh, we came in there like, like rock stars, my college group, uh, young guys and, and, and gals like you, you, you guys. I mean, most of them were undergrads. My book, Swimming the Volga, has testimonials from six students that were in my group. 
about their impressions of the visit and everything else. So the book isn't just about me, but it's all about trying to paint a picture. And over all of it are these plate tectonic changes going on in Russia, perestroika, does, you know, it does open things up, but it's uh, very, very uh, difficult. Russians still did big muscle moves well, big infrastructure projects, transportation, go up into space, but it's the little type of things that they, uh, they, they would struggle, uh, struggle with. And I've already, um, you know, and then you get shock therapy and all of that in the economy. And, and it just, I could go on and on and on. There was an openness. And one of the big benefits of it was the contact between Russians and others that um, I believe right now is dangerously curtailed. I understand why. But we, again, we risk demonizing each other. And I think we're a little bit there right now. Great. And then one more sort of question on the past before we start moving a little bit forward. As you touched on earlier, we're now 30 years past the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And the Journal of World Affairs will feature a section entitled The Dissolution of the Soviet Union, which examines the political, cultural, and economic impacts of the collapse of the USSR on modern-day Eastern Europe and Eurasia. So what, in your view, have been the most important impacts of the collapse on this region? And how have your firsthand experiences living in Russia informed that perspective? It's a great question. I touched on it. God, it's so deep. And, and I, I, uh, I tell folks, try to understand what happened in, uh, in, in 1991, though it was looming long before that. I was literally on the road with a friend of mine. We flew to Moscow in 19... 91 June, and we rented a little Lada. It's like a Fiat 124, you know, sturdy little basic thing. And the world is changing. We had Soviet visas, and we drove from Moscow to Tbilisi, Georgia. Just two American captains, blue passports, and we we drove down south of. Uh, Moscow, Tolstoy's birthplace, and then Oriol, Kharkov in, in, in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, Rostov into the Caucasus. And this was a Russia, the Soviet Union, you could see that was beginning to creak and fall apart with the infrastructure. And, and uh, so we, we, were in, uh, we were in Ukraine, which was broken away. We, got, we were in Georgia, and we touched briefly into Armenia. And again, it was Soviet Union, six months later, Soviet Union is in the ash heap of history. Russia, the Soviet Union built its empire basically out of uh, hides and carcasses and conquest of many other civilizations uh, and peoples um, uh, short of whatever you would call core Western Russia, which was a battleground of course too, old Rus. You get back to the early stories of Russia, Ukraine and all of that. And, um, and here you are, you know, and, in, and so in 1922, you have now the Soviet Union with 15 republics carved from all the way Baltic and, and Arctic White Sea out to Asia and the Pacific Ocean. You, you have a border the size of Canada and ours with with. China. How does that get your threat perception going? Central Asia and all your campaigns down in there. 
the Caucasus. And they all come in under the Soviet Union. Most of them wrestled into it by conquest. And then all the things that you know about the Soviet Union, as I talked about, it all falls apart that December. When I was there that summer in 91, and when I spent the summer in 89 and other times, everybody knew there were problems. People were beginning to break away, but right up to the end, there, I don't, there are very, very few Soviets, very, very few people in the world that thought the Soviet would break up. And that was a shock. And there is enormous scar tissue. And I've already touched on that. And so now you have, you know, the Soviets, excuse me, the Russians will call it their privileged sphere. You're hearing spheres of influence and all that. We have a Western position, a correct position, I believe, United that, that, that there are no spheres. You can certainly have influence and be involved in things. And this whole business with Ukraine is a lot part of that. Plus there's just terrible historical baggage there. Foreign policy, getting all this period and the breakaway and all this that's going on. I think right now we're watching a, the term I use would almost be an angry, petulant foreign policy. And, um, and, and they are, they've kind of reverted to uh, old practices, coercion, threats. Remember, I'm one that fundamentally likes the Russians, but a lot of this comes from the baggage and the scar tissue of 30 years ago, which my book is all about that time. And then finally, uh, leading up to that period, the Soviets had lost their buffer zone in Eastern Europe. All those countries in Central and Eastern Europe that were under the Warsaw Pact were free. And mm -hmm. almost all of them now are in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Let me say one thing about NATO because it's important. I get the Russian bit. They see the world in what they call Westphalian terms, big blue arrows and big red arrows. And I go blue in the face when I was in Russia as our defense attache 2014 during the uh, invasion of Ukraine that this is not that West because we were reminded, well, the Nazis came out of the West 85 years ago. And that was a horrible experience for Russia. Soviet Union, though, they brought it upon themselves a bit. So you have this enormous baggage and you have NATO enlargement. But here, young friends, I would say, why we, did we expand? And I tell this to the Russians and we go back and forth. Why did NATO expand? And the Russians told me it's all about us. It's all about Russia. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. These countries are afraid of you and they've been caught in between for in history. But another reason, and I, this is with something I take back to class and I posed it to the Russians at a major security conference in Moscow in June. First of all, I, I said, well, you know, NATO is as much about providing countries that have forever been caught in between war and east, west, north, south, calamity, holocaust, all of that, everywhere from Ukraine all the way, you know, up to uh, Germany, to Czech and Poland and, you know, and so these, are, and, and, and what NATO has given them finally is some sense of security, not just from the Russians, but from each other, because they're always at war with each other. And one of the things about being in NATO is you're not going to fight each other and you're not going to have claims on each other's land. And then Russia, the second point, 
and you're all historians by what you do, do you Russia really think that you would be safer in the next generation, the way the world is going, in a world without a stable Europe, you know, a Europe ideally with NATO and the EU, they don't want war with you, don't want conflict. They certainly want their foreign policy and we want to work with Russia while we can. But uh, so it isn't all about Russia. But what Russia now, friends, is doing on the Ukrainian border, they're making it all about Russia now. And they're actually hardening us, and hardening the West. And I believe potentially this will backfire and worries me because then they go into a point of uh, uh, doubling down. I know I'm ahead of myself, but all of this, 30 years ago, go out and study the effects, uh, the joy, the hope that came out of the breakup of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. And then look what has happened since Putin picked up on a lot of these uh, in the early 2000s. Last thing about Vladimir Putin, after 22 years, he is a serious customer. I think a lot of us took him for uh, uh, underestimated him. Um, he's Russian to the core. Now, that doesn't exonerate him for a lot what's going on, but it might explain a, a lot of what's Okay, back to you. That was a wonderful answer, really tying in some of the sort of traumas and insecurities as well as hope into what has now become the reality of modern Russia. So this interview, as I'm sure you know, is being conducted in the midst of U.S.-Russia security negotiations. As Russia continues to build its military presence near Ukraine, NATO discusses eastward expansion, I think even recent news reports have suggested U.S. intelligence thinks that Russia may be attempting to use false flag operations in Ukraine. So clearly it's a conflict and an issue that's really very hot at the moment. Given your own experience with Russian security affairs as both an officer and as a Wilson Center Global Fellow, do you view a Russian invasion of Ukraine as a plausible outcome of these mounting tensions? Yes, it's plausible. Do I think it's inevitable? No. All right, I'm not going to go that way. It's plausible because... You have a lot of force structure going on. You have a lot of pride that's going on now. And, and again, I'm somebody that really believes we got to find a way with Russia and vice versa, because we, I've had my personal experiences there. And, and, and I know we can get there. But right now, the baggage is so deep for all the reasons. Um, again, angry foreign policy. And I think the Russians are increasingly boxing themselves into a corner where they will see, well, if we stand down, we're showing weakness. No, my answer, I tell you as students, no, you're not backing down. You've made your point. It's a different way of standing. You've made your point. Now take a deep breath. And there are conduits for negotiation that are going on, except for those fundamental things. And, I, I'm, I'm, and while I'm a big advocate in finding a way with Russia, I'm also a big NATO for the reasons I just outlined, it's not just about Russia. But what has happened, and this is, I think, not part of Putin's calculus, and while it is Russian, I think Putin is the uber decision maker. And I don't think that his population are all on board with him. If this thing goes bad, people start dying in the hundreds of thousands, that's not going to be popular. I, was, I spoke to Afghan veterans in 1989 in Russia at the end of the war. Boy, you know, talk about polarized, hard guys. So there's a lot going on there that, that the regime needs to be looking over its shoulder. And I think it's increasingly worried about that. There'd be a way to be able to allow them to stop 
and somewhere maintain, if you will, their credibility. But as I said, this is in really deep. Your point, Cameron, is what we are worried about. And this has happened before. This, in fact, the right before the Nazi invasion of uh, Poland, there was a, in, in 1939, there was a fake incident that occurred that had them launched. That is dangerous because you get something that is contrived, it is uh, provocative, it goes, you got media, social media, it, it, uh, it feeds the narrative. Yep, you see the Ukrainians are, 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 are gonna attack us, let's go. The good news is people are talking about it and everybody's looking. And one of the big differences in Russia with Russia today than when I was there in our embassy, remember, I was there as our senior military guy, 2012 to 2014, I saw the whole Ukraine thing go down and the annexation of Crimea. We didn't know it was opaque. We knew stuff was developing, but we didn't see, we didn't know how it was going to happen. I mean, all the forces are out there, 100,000, 150, a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of capability to do damage. They can go in and take big chunks of land. It would be bloody. But now for you, youth, and this is the question, when you run into people to talk about war, all right, you've done that. Now what do we do? We've just gobbled up major chunks of Ukraine. And guess what? Ukraines are fighting. And oh my God, there's an insurgency going on. And they're fighting us also behind our lines. And a lot of our people are coming back in body bags. And 30% of the Russian ground military, guess what? Our draftees. They're conscripts, they're patriotic Russians, but I don't think that they've necessarily bought in to an occupation battle deep somewhere in the Ukrainian hinterland where they're getting sniped back and partisans. So this is a very dangerous moment for the Russians. If they go, they could get themselves mired. Last point, another reason that I think holds them back is money matters in the senior echelons of the Russian regime. Bad invasion that fails would be bad for business in Russia. If you're an oligarch or you're a moneyed guy and you want to get out to your, your interests in the West or your yachts in the Caribbean or, or whatever, you've got that thing going on too. And while they are patriotic, they don't want to be dragged into a war and then be sanctioned to death. And you all heard about that in the SWIFT and it will hurt them. Plus the whole world is united in a way that, um, that I don't think the, the Russians anticipated. Last point, I think they thought also that they could split Europe and NATO and the United States. And what they've done is hardened them. And they may play the, you may hear about the natural gas thing. You're gonna shut oil, natural gas off on the, German, uh, on the Germans and all. Well, I gotta believe in the Wilson, if they do that, there'll be workarounds um, mm -hmm. and, and the Germans will hold the line. So much going. I don't think the it's all there to go in for a very dangerous, destructive campaign. I believe the Russians are on a precipice. If they go, they have a lot of success initially, but then they are in a world of hurt. And I think that's exactly what they're thinking about right now. Do we go or do we find a way to credibility? We've made our points. We'll take a deep breath and let's all continue the dialogue. Last, last point. I think it's really good. One good thing is it's now allowed the discussion about NATO and Russia and the world and what NATO is. Um, um, and I think that it's showing that it isn't what the Russians portray 
a type of organization that wants to advance in Ukraine, and then from Ukraine, advance to Moscow, stop. That's old school thinking. I feel strongly on these issues. It's possible. So you talk a little bit there in that explanation about Russia sort of having backed itself into a corner with its posturing, with it acting hard and sort of pushing back. What can the West do to sort of help let it out of that box? You say, you know, we want them to not feel like backing down is humiliation, is defeat. What's the role of NATO, of the EU, of the US in making that a viable option? I think that it's not about throwing Ukraine away. Ukraine is not going to invade Russia. This is all about, you know, fundamentals. This is stuff that you're all studying. You know, you go back to the United Nations Charter, study up on the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, when the Russians uh, declare once Ukrainians uh, give, give their nukes away after the fall of the Cold War, that, that, that they will, their independence and sovereignty will be respected. So the Russians are on, on board with that. First, yeah, let's talk about you know, reducing the armed, you know, the, the military maneuvers on both sides of the border. The Russians will say it's our border, but then we will say Lithuanians, Latvians, and Estonians, it's their border too. And they do need assurance, and they're not big amounts of people. There is no force out on the West in the East in NATO that is a old school grab thousands of miles of invasion. No. So you talk about the way to, first of all, you got to have more dialogue. You got to get our senior leaders talking more than just, yep, we start working cultural exchanges. Far from that right now. You, you stop to talk about uh, mutually putting in intermediate range missiles. You work the new start aspect. You start looking for things we could cooperate. We used, we since 1975, go back and study Apollo and Soyuz in the heart of the Cold War. It's just three years after uh, the Yom Kippur War and the little bit of detente. Can you believe it? Heart of the Cold War, American and Soviet scientists trust each other enough to make their airlocks fit in outer space in 1975 when we have missiles on all sides aimed at each other uh, on the ground. We got to go back to that and you find ways and then realize we have bigger problems in the world. Europe, the West, the United States, Russia need to find a way, find these cooperative things. I'm really worried about the cultural thing. I want you guys to get into Russia if you haven't, and I imagine some of you have, and the economic issues and all that. We could go on and on. Also, last point, we were lucky. We were blessed at the, in uh, Glasnost in the end of it with leaders that realized this isn't working. And, and even though they're all coal warriors, they, they figured it out. Now, I know we're coming sort of towards the end of our time. And so the last question, though it is a bit of a big one, is that I'm wondering how Cold War era metaphors and understanding about a great conflict between Russia or the Soviet Union and the West, and also experiences of those crises, including things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, still affect modern understandings and how they affect the prospect of cooperation between Russia and the West, not only on security issues, but also on questions like climate change and counterterrorism. 
well, I'll go. To, I'll I'll hit the easy one first. Uh, absolutely. By the way, don't tell the Russians that climate change isn't happening. You guys know it because you're students. Their whole freaking Arctic is melting up there, and the permafrost is is it's it's getting. They got their natural gas pipelines normally laid on top of it that are crumpling in place. So the Russians have got a huge climate change challenge, and they're aware of it. Yet they, they were playing politics with the Chinese when they kind of didn't attend the most recent climate change summit, saying, but that's that's the nature of the world. But you talk to the Russians and the scientists, yep, we got climate change problems. So do we. The counter-terror, we've been on and off again with the Russians. It's sort of, I'll, I'll say this, even today there is a back channel on counter-terror stuff. It's much reduced, but serious, crazy stuff, there is a good chance that we would pass them or they would pass us a warning. But it is a difficult situation. You will sometimes in strange situations, intelligence people talk to each other, even though officially the nations are at each other's throat. So you got all that stuff that's going on where we can be working together. The problem is now is that you have each other glowering at each other uh, across the border. And it makes it hard to break out of that and into these other things. I'm in a dual track type of thing. I, I'm in part of several um, groups or conferences that meet with the Russians periodically, face to face. I haven't done it since COVID that are unofficial, but the officials know, that talk about these very issues because we all aware, as ugly as it is, we got to find a way out of, you know, the, the classic Russian word is out of the way is tupik. And tupik means uh, cul-de-sac. Then finally, and the biggest one of all, and you guys are the future and you're brilliant, and we got all these new cyber technologies and, and AI, and, and a lot of it is incredible, but a lot of it is scary too. And that's unbridled and uncontrolled. But on a bad day, and this is where I start from when I was that young artillery officer in 1982, we don't get it right. We could blow each other off the face of the planet 12 hours and everybody with us. The nuclear threat is alive and sadly all too real. And both sides have been modernizing and it's there. Rationally, it won't happen until you get into this world of distrust and suspicion and provocation. And now everything is so cyber. You know, things that used to take hours or days to decide, now minutes. So we got to get after the nuclear thing. And it is, of course, cyber and AI is part of it. I, I say, thank God, go off and study a little bit about that you know, new start. Start, you know, the Russians call it Start 3 was signed, thank God, in February. It's a five-year extension to keep a handle on strategic nuclear weapons and try to get at these new technologies. And it would sure be nice that Chinese would do it, but right now they're not, they, they're, they're, they're not interested. So there's a lot that we could be working on. We've got to come to an understanding right now with this Ukraine situation. Everybody backs off. Ukraine has its right to survive. That doesn't mean we, we, we invite them into NATO, but they always have the right to in theory be, but it isn't happening anytime soon, rest assured. And we've just got to get, we've got to get off the precipice with the Russians, getting at your earlier point, because it's extremely dangerous. And uh, you historians, 
we don't want to land in one of those how did we get here moments like occurred in 1914 but the capability today of immediate and quick destruction is so much crazier and faster so we're going to figure out a way i'm going to be an optimist that concludes the first episode of the global visions podcast hosted by the brown journal of world affairs Thank you for listening, and thank you to General Zwag for the opportunity to speak with him. Be sure to check out General Zwag's newest book, Swimming in the Volga, which can be found on Amazon. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.